From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest today is Scott Barry Kaufman, who is a cognitive psychologist, author of a number of books, including Wired to Create, and scientific director at the Imagination Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, where he conducts research on creativity and redefining intelligence. Scott is a fan favorite among students at Penn, where he teaches the wildly popular Introduction to Positive Psychology course, which, by the way, my daughter took when she was a student here and absolutely loved it. Scott co-founded the Creativity Post. He writes for the Beautiful Minds blog at Scientific American, and he hosts the fantastic psychology podcast, which you should definitely listen to. We're going to be talking about Scott's personal journey, his story of how he got to become a cognitive psychologist and and to do the research that he does. It's an inspiring story, as you will hear. We're going to talk about what a creative mind looks like and, and what creative people do differently, the importance of cultivating not obsessive passions, but harmonious intrinsic passions, very important distinction, and how to design a more creative lifestyle. Now, here is my conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman. So, Scott, how did you get into this field of creativity and positive psychology? What led you here? It's a great question. Um, I think my whole life... um, especially as, as young as I can remember, I was really interested in human possibility and what people are capable of achieving in life. I felt personally like I was being held back. I was, uh, first three years of my life, I suffered from something called central auditory processing disorder. It was a learning disability that made it very hard for me to process things in real time. And I was placed in special education as a result. And I remember sitting there in special ed. I, I you know, have memories as, as young as can be, just sitting there daydreaming, looking out the window, just thinking like, is there more <laughs> that I'm capable of doing? Hmm. Um, you know, uh, talking to my friends in special ed, all of us kind of wondered if we were, you know, if uh, if we could bypass these expectations or if we're prisoners of these expectations. And so... So this was in elementary school? You were yeah. having conversations like this? Absolutely. I, I was definitely, um, I just had this fascination. Uh, and I think it was in large part maybe the circumstances where I was placed. So Maybe um, I am who I am today because I was in special education, you mm-hmm. know, and I got that perspective. But I just felt like there was um, a lot of greater possibilities. And this is this is before uh, the field of positive psychology was even founded. So um, it was just, you know, I resonated so much with it. Then I started to get into the science of intelligence. I started off in, in trying to understand the standard metrics of intelligence. So I wanted to learn everything I could about IQ testing and um, and cognitive ability, working memory, stuff like that. And um, and then I, I feel like I reached a point where I, I like got it. I was like, oh, yeah, I get it, what that is. Was that because you were wondering about your own intelligence or what it meant to be 
<clears throat> Great question. Open to possibility and, <clears throat> and exploring the world? I think um, uh, I, was, I just wanted to know <clears throat> what intelligence meant. Like, what was it? Mm. Like, what, um, how limited is it? And I, re- and I thought that my mission in life was to redefine intelligence. I thought, like, uh, junior year in high, in, in high school, I, I had this moment where I was like, that's my mission in life, is to redefine intelligence. And <clears throat> I applied to the um, Carnegie Mellon University. And I wrote a long personal essay about how I want to redefine intelligence. And they rejected me because my SAT scores weren't high enough to redefine <laughs> intelligence. And I said, that was some ironic That's BS. Ironic. Yeah. Um, so instead, um, I was determined and I auditioned for their opera program. And I got a scholarship to Carnegie Mellon for opera. No way. <laughs> and the departments don't talk to each other, apparently. and Because uh, they had just what? rejected me in the cognitive opera science. Opera and psychology, yeah, they, yeah. Don't, they don't speak to each other? Apparently not, because they had already rejected me in the cognitive science. Oh, program. I see. Yeah, so I, but so I, just, I, I still went to Carnegie Mellon under an opera scholarship, and then I transferred to psychology, like almost immediately. Backdoor into psychology yeah, through opera. That's correct. That's probably happened very few times before. I'm probably, guessing. probably very few times. So you got to Carnegie, uh, Carnegie Mellon, and and what blossomed there? Um, when I got there, I took a course in cognitive psychology, and we were using Robert Sternberg's textbook, Cognitive Psychology, and I remember we got to this chapter. You know, I remember so vividly, like a lot of people, I think that they 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 um, get a very when they find their purpose in life or they really uh, they can usually point to a moment. Now, maybe these are just the narratives we make in our life looking mm-hmm. back, but it's a very vivid moment where you're like, wow, this is it. And I remember sitting there um, on the sofa sophomore year of college. Um, we we're reading the chapter on intelligence in Robert Sternberg's uh, Cognitive Psychology textbook, one of his older editions. Now he's up to like the 50th edition or whatever that I, that I, I used in my course when I used to teach Cognitive Psychology. Um, and I just sat there and I was like, holy cow, like there's a whole scientific feel. Like I thought in my head I was like wondering, like I was going to start this. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what existed. I just mm-hmm. like I knew in, in high school, I was like, I really wanted to redefine intelligence. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, there are people. Someone's done it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got Gar- Sternberg and Gardner were the two biggies right, right then. And they became my idols instantly. Sternberg and Gardner. Yeah. And so how did they shape your your experience both at school and, and beyond? And, and then how did that get you into the particular realm of creativity? Um, they shaped uh, very much. I uh, reached out to Sternberg and came up with this plan that I was going to redefine intelligence and I was going to study with Sternberg. And we came up with this plan to get into Yale for PhD, uh, my cognitive psychology teacher, like I told her, like I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I want to do, and mm-hmm. at, at the goodness of her heart, and and also I think she saw something in me, um, uh, and she took me under her wing, and we did, uh, we came up with a concrete plan to get me into Yale to study with Robert Sternberg for a PhD. Like we came up with a, a ve- like talk about we talk about goal setting a lot in you know in our field. Yes, and, we do. And I goal set it up the kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> it works though, right? It really did. It worked. Yeah. For so me. what happened? You you set the goal of being Get, admitted to the PhD being admitted program. Being admitted to the PhD program at Yale. And then I ended up having an embarrassment of riches where I, I followed the plan so slavishly <laughs> that I um, got into uh, Harvard to work with Howard Gardner as well. And mm-hmm. I also got into um, University of Cambridge on the Gates Cambridge Scholarship. So I had to actually make a decision between Harvard, Yale, and Cambridge. I, by the way, you know, I say that and it sounds so pretentious, but like this it is does, I have to say. coming from like the place that I was coming from. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, okay. I'm sorry if it does. No, um, no, no. It's fine. It's true. But you understand, coming from the place that I came from and how much I wanted it, how badly yeah. I wanted it, it was like, um, like I remember when I, when I, when I got the news, Sternberg wrote me this email and he's like, 
oh yeah, you got it. You know, you got in to, and I just screamed in, <laughs> in the hallway and like, everyone's like, can you shut up? <laughs> We're trying to have sex here. <laughs> I don't know what college <laughs> students do. I don't know. I shouldn't. They do not have sex. <laughs> they don't Easy do that. Patty. They don't, they, oh, my producer's going nuts oh, here. That was, that was bad. That was inappropriate. It's okay. fine. It's yeah. totally appropriate. Yeah. Um, but whatever they're, they're like, they're like, could you please, and you're trying to, you know, we're trying to study. That's all students do. Oh right? yes. Of course. Um, that's but what whatever. Doing. I was just like, yes, you know, I got in. <laughs> that euphoria I'm sure is something that uh, you'll probably never forget. You, you must have had to overcome a lot of obstacles starting as a special ed student to, uh, to find your true metier, to find something where you really were uh, awake, alive, and obviously very talented. Yeah. So you're saying I had to find a lot of what? I'm sorry. I, what I meant was uh, to ask you about was, you know, the uh, the obstacles you had to overcome to to get to that point. There were a lot of obstacles. You're, by the way, you're asking really good questions. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about awesome. how you got here. This is great. No, um, and it's obviously like you know, this is very deeply personal, vulnerable stuff. But I love uh, I, I love talking about it because I feel like it inspires other people. You know, um, I think that um, th- there were a lot of obstacles around, along the way. I um, you know, of course, not getting to Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. but also in ninth grade, I was kept in special education till ninth grade, and uh, there was that mo- the moment where a teacher took me aside, a special ed teacher, and said, "You know, I see your frustration. Why are you still here? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you still? What are you? Um, you know, have you thought about taking yourself out of uh, trying something else?" And I, I tried. To, I realized no one had ever asked me that question before. Your parents hadn't. No. Um, by the way, this shows the importance of asking good questions, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, no, like that one question changed it, my whole life. And the I, question that this, the ninth grade teacher asked: What are you, you doing here? Yeah. What are you doing here? And uh, she also said, "She said I see you," and that's the uh, first time I've ever felt seen in my entire life as well. And um, and I uh, became inspired to take myself out of special ed and see what I was capable of. And I signed up for like every class imaginable. Um, and, um, I did, wasn't necessarily good at everything, but, um, I learned and everything. And, um, it was, uh, just so exciting to be able to have the freedom to explore my identity. I think that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted was that freedom. Um, I, I think we need to give all, all people, uh, all the autonomy to, um, explore their identity. That's exactly what we're trying to do on this show and what I try to do with my work too. And so it's, it's truly inspiring to hear how you, how you did that for yourself, but with the help of people asking you questions that helped to sort of liberate you, uh, to free you to pursue uh, the person you were to become. Yeah. We can't do this alone, can we? We really can't. And um, I think we also under- underestimate the extent to which, like, one supportive word can uh, change someone's life, you know. Yeah. Or just not just not even up to seeing, looking at someone, not seeing, looking through them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... So what was the the deficit? How did it keep you in, I'm just really curious, how you got through to ninth grade? That's pretty far along the track. I know. Uh, that, you know, it took that long for, for you to be, uh, um, you know, unchained, if I can use that word, and, and brought into, you know, the broader, the broader world, the broader stream. Yeah. Um, so you're wondering as well, like, what were my parents involved and stuff? Um, I, I should say that my parents, you know, love them. They will be listening to this 
this radio. <laughs> so they, well, I'm going to send a link to this. Um, so um, I love them. Uh, they're great. Um, uh, but they, uh, my mom is a very overprotective Jewish mother. And um, <laughs> I was like, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> so, okay. you totally, no, uh, <laughs> I don't really have a filter. Um, I, my I, mom is a fine. very overprotective Jewish mother. And she's like, um, just like, um, I want to make sure nothing happens to my Scotty. And um, so I think she, uh, like a lot of well-meaning parents, you know, I think she's very, she was very well-meaning. Um, they over, overprotect in order to um, uh, they don't want to see their child suffer at all. Um, hmm. But but by doing that, you know, it really held me back. Ah, yeah. So the, the protection became became a prison in itself. Absolutely. Hi, this is Stu Friedman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation, and I'm just so glad you're listening. If you like the Work and Life podcast, I would personally appreciate your taking just a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast, whatever your favorite platform is. We are relatively new as a podcast, uh, and our team is working really hard to bring you for free the best of the conversations that took place on my Sirius XM radio show but were previously available only to paid subscribers. So every positive rating and review helps us to grow our capacity to move faster toward the goal of sharing useful information and insights about how to create harmony among the different parts of life with people who wouldn't otherwise have access. So please do help us. And if you have ideas for what we can do to improve our impact please write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, and now, back to the show. So let's get into what you write about, you know, especially what I'm particularly interested in is what you're writing about in, in Wired to Create and uh, you know, the messy minds of, of highly creative people. What do you think people. of that idea? Uh, well, I... It, it seems to fit. Uh, so explain what what you mean sure. what you mean by that, and and uh, if you could perhaps give us some examples of of some of the uh, remarkable people that you profile in, in your sure. in your new book. Sure, you know I um I a lot of people we profile in this book they're not like household names necessarily, but I I found them so fascinating. Um, there's this one rapper called Baba Brinkman who um, raps. He's you know he's like a white the. A Canadian rapper who like raps about um, science. <laughs> he's a science rapper, you know. What? And he's really yeah. It's really cool. Like listen to his stuff. He raps about evolution and um, and all this kind of stuff. And I um, I was doing a uh, um, I was interviewing really creative people a couple years ago, and I was giving a whole uh, battery of personality tests because I was really like curious, like what really creative people like what they're like. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was looking at his profile, and it was like so like. Um, it was contradicting himself in every way, you know, it was like, it was like on the one hand, you know, he has one hand, his average narcissism score wasn't high, but like, you know, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. You guys, a rapper with not with average narcissism. Okay. But then some it, of they're usually high, they're usually on high that, on that scale. Yes. <laughs> but then when you look at the actual like facets, like he was, he did he scored high in some like confidence, some things that were actually adaptive for rapping, but lower in the things that like entitled, like lower in entitlement, which wouldn't be as adaptive. And then, you know, he adaptive for that role. For that role. Exactly. Uh-huh. Exactly. And then things like, um, uh, he showed uh, a great preference um, 
for uh, uh, for like short term mating strategies, you know, like short term flings. But at the same time, he um, also uh, that would seem adaptive for that role. Uh, yeah, but he also reported um, a great ability to sustain relationships. Hmm. Uh, so I, I dived into like deep into his contradictions. Yeah, contradictions all over the place. And then once you start looking in the literature, so that's just one example. But then when you when you branch out, and you start looking, you find this is a very common pattern across um, most of the greatest creative geniuses of all time is um, they contradict themselves constantly. And then it occurred to me like maybe it's in those contradictions where creativity gives where it gives birth to creativity. And um, the tension that that tension, the ability to um, to resolve these tensions um, is a lot of things that drive the creative person. And it also is what gives birth to creativity. Uh, and so we talked about Picasso. Uh, if you look at Picasso's creative process, especially his painting of Guernica, you see that um, he doesn't look like he's going through a, a, a linear trajectory um, when he's painting these things. So you see some drafts that look like it's taken him five steps back. You know, if you just isolate it in that one moment, you're like, oh, wow, he really well, – it's almost like he's doing this blind. You know, he's just doing random trial and error is what it, it looks like from – you know that perspective, and you realize that that was actually essential for his creative process was this nonlinear trajectory. Hmm. So um, when I was interviewed by Carolyn Guaguara for a Huffington Post article that did really well, called "18 Things Creative People Do Differently," she asked me, you know, what would you say is the one thing that would, do in your research, that describes creative people? And the first thing that came to my mind was like, they have really messy minds. It turns out that one quote is like, like just like went viral, and so I was like, maybe people resonate with that. <laughs> What is it that that resonated? Why do, why do people say, yeah, messy minds, that's it, I get it? Do you know what I think? Um, we focus so much on – how am I doing, by the way? <laughs> this is going well. I, I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation. <laughs> I, I hope that people listening are. I got two thumbs up from Yay! the control booth. So, yeah, keep okay, going, cool. Scott. Messy minds. We focus so much in our society on efficiency. Messy conversation? Uh, no, no on, on efficiency. So, like, you know, um, in, in elementary school, in high school, everything, mm-hmm. doing everything right, taking that one test, getting the A, um, you know, uh, making sure that on the SATs and that one, one shot, you know, that you do perfect. Um, uh, when you uh, – just constantly, we're, we're, we have all these societal pressures to be efficient. But that's not – creativity is not characterized by efficiency. Creativity is characterized by variability. Um, and we don't mm. – um, if we want to structure a society that is really conducive to creativity, we need to take that fact into account and we need to allow people that opportunity for trial and error and for getting messy. Um, but we have not set up uh, structures like that at all, including business structures. You know, I, I love your world. <laughs> so, you know, the business world and huh. and all that. So it's important uh, to take into account that messiness aspect. You know, like for managers, for instance. Well, there's a lot of uh, work on in innovation and creativity in the business world that, of course, uh, you know, glorifies chaos and, and understands this concept of uh, the need for. Uh, um, I'm still not sure I know exactly what it means. Oh, what I'm talking messy about. Messy thinking. <laughs> uh, well, I, well, there's I take... messy personality and there's messy uh, creative process. Okay. There's two different things. So when we talk about both in the in the book, so. Um, creative people, creative people who tend to create creative products tend to have messy minds in the sense they can harness um, daydreaming, but they can also harness their mindfulness. They can harness their sensitivity, because they can also harness their resiliency. 
they can harness. They're op- there's just constant contradictions. They have they're very, mm. have a very well developed openness to experience, um, a, a very well developed and honed intuition, but they also have a really heightened rationality, rational facility. Mm. So um, that does sound contradictory. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I mean about the creative personality. But then when you look at the creative trajectory, um, and and there's been some great analyses. Dean Keith Simonton's done some great analyses of the creative process itself of of some of the greatest pieces works of art and and uh, literature and science of all time and you find that it, it conforms to what's called the equal odds rule um, the equal odds rule states that um, your chance of producing a masterpiece increases the more you produce something regardless of the quality of what you're producing it actually turns out that the greatest people in uh in each generation those who make the history books um had a product or two that like goes down the history books is the greatest thing of all time. But they also have have a lot of things that go down in the history book as the worst things of their generation. <laughs> um, they just have the most things that they produced. Variability. That's what I mean by that. Yeah. So producing a lot and some of it's going to be junk and absolutely in that uh, in that pile of junk absolutely. is going to be uh, a diamond worth hopefully, mining. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, but that's that's the pattern. It's the constant pattern. It's almost become a rule. In, in your new book, you, you talk about imaginative play, about passion, daydreaming, solitude, intuition, openness to experience, mindfulness, sensitivity, turning adversity into advantage, and thinking differently. These are 10 critical um, aspects of life that help to unleash creativity. Because I, you know, I talk to a lot of students, a lot of people in the business world who say, you know, I wish I could be more creative. And, and your research has found some answers to that question. So um, I, I know we're not going to be able to dig into all of it, but um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about how some of these, um, these activities help people to uh, tap into the contradictions within that unleash their creativity. Sure. I think you know creativity is the ultimate personal freedom. Um, when you're, mm. to me, creative, creative expression is, um, is, is so intimately in- intertwined with, uh, per- with uh, self-expression. Um, and the more that we can give, you know, the more, creativity is not something that we need necessarily like a course where we say, okay, today class, we're going to force you to be a creative. We're going to mm-hmm. give you a set of rules. But what we can do is we can, we can really help people um, find an identity that they really suits them, that is um, harmoniously passionate. So this is something that I think will um, is very much in line with a lot of stuff you do in your show. Um, the field of positive psychology has uh, distinguished between a form of passion called harmonious passion, a form of passion called obsessive passion. Hmm. Um, harmonious passion, and this is Robert Valran who's done uh, this terrific research. Um, harmonious passion is when the activity that it, that you're involved in, you feel like it's really well integrated into the rest of yourself. So there's no conflict there between work or other areas of your life that give you meaning. It's uh, You're engaged in an activity that makes you feel good about yourself mm-hmm. that is in line with your set of values. Whenever you engage in it, you feel good about yourself and you feel um, uh, an inner drive to engage. You feel like uh, in the flow uh, experience, which is a really important uh, experience. Um, where you're completely absorbed in your activity. Um, and then you also feel like you can disengage whenever you want. You know, it's like you're, you're engaged, but then like your wife calls or, or, or something, uh, something else in your, in your life that's meaningful to you. And you're like, oh, you know what? I can put this work aside now and now I can engage in this part of my life and hmm. gain this meaning. 
obsessively passionate people um, or obsessive passion seems to be related to um, uh, much greater levels of burnout, mm-hmm. um, stress, um, uh, injury. Um, they've done studies on dancers who are obsessively passionate and they're much more prone for physical injury. Mm. Um, and people who are obsessively passionate, about, uh, obsessively passionate are um, engaged in their activity out of contingencies. Like contingencies, like self-esteem, could be a contingency. Mm-hmm. You know, I if I, I get the prima ballerina status, I exactly. will be loved by all. There's a difference from engaging in what you do in life because you it makes you feel good about yourself, your value system, your what you want to contribute to this world. Versus you contribute an activity because it makes it bolsters your self-esteem, mm-hmm. your ego, um, and there are different things. And re- and scientists have shown that, that they do have implications um, for um, well-being, for a sense of vitality. So um, harmonious mm. passion is correlated with a greater sense that you're alive. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and then ultimate performance. So they've looked at mm-hmm. um, actual performance in music, in sports, um, in, uh, in, among psychology un- undergrads, for instance, and they, it matters. Well, so this is something that I know a lot of people are searching for or want more of in their lives. What kinds of things do you, do you either teach about or write about that would help people develop further a greater experience of harmonious passion in their own lives? Great question. And I, I wish everyone could take a course in positive psychology cause, or, or just, you know— um, uh, maybe there are some books with some exercises and things because a lot of these exercises are designed to help you really ground yourself in in, in who you are and what matters to you and then what what uh, matters the most in life. And um, you know, there's uh, gratitude is is a really important thing. Um, there's this activity we do in our class where you write down three things that. Um, you're most grateful for at the end of your day, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, uh, and it's good to do that before you go to bed and then like sleep on that, <laughs> you know, like you wake up in a much more positive mood. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's research on this. All right. Uh, that's three good an easy things. one, folks. <laughs> before you, before you uh, close your eyes and take those last few deep breaths and lose consciousness, yes. think yeah. about a couple of things that you're grateful for. Yeah. And keep I can't it. think of anything, Scott. There's nothing. Everything's terrible. Well, what, what happens then if you're in that mindset? Well, so keep a journal, and um, and I, I imagine that you can at least think of one <laughs> good thing. <laughs> I mean, th- there's no matter what the life is, you know, it, you need to reframe what is a good thing. You know, like seeing a beautiful flower can be a good thing that you have gratitude for. All right. But so it might be something yeah, really small. It can be, yeah, something beautiful. Um, but um, the thing about um, gratitude, as well as um, keeping a journal about the stuff, is you want to look for patterns in your life of things that um, really um, you are, you know, why are you alive, basically? We have, mm-hmm. Life is so short. You know, why are you, um, you know, what are you doing this for, you know? And, um, and, mm-hmm. and you realize, you start to see the larger patterns and you start to see things that really do give you a lot of meaning and gratitude in life. Like, I am so appreciative for this. And, and, and that helps to actually hone your sense of self. That's one way of honing your sense of self. Um, mindfulness is another thing. I, I start off a lot of my classes with a mindfulness meditation. That, yes, I know. My yeah. daughter's telling oh, me. She's, my daughter, let me say, is a, is a huge fan of Scott Kaufman. He's, he's taking Aww. his class now. And that uh, was the first thing I said. So how's that class going? Well, we start meditating every, <laughs> at the beginning of each class. Wow. How does he do that? How do you do that, Scott? <laughs> 
Um, don't tell the students, but as, I, I, there's a part of it uh, that is also for myself as well because I want to get into a really relaxed, calm state to teach them. Wait, you, know? you don't tell them that? Yeah, I, uh, I don't think I've told them that. But. I think you should tell uh, them that because uh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to tell them okay, if you don't you'll tell, tell them. them. You'll tell right, them. That's, yeah, this is part of it. But um, Actually, you just yeah, did tell them. I did tell them. I just told the world. <laughs> um, you know, because I want to make sure that I'm really there and present with them as well um, mm-hmm. for that hour and 20 minutes or so. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I find that, um, you know, the, the mindfulness thing is, you know, really, um, I really like a kind of mindfulness, uh, activity, um, active, uh, open monitoring, mindfulness, open monitoring, where you really have a very, um, you're very non-judgmentally allowing, um, all sorts of thoughts and daydreams to enter your consciousness hmm. and you don't try to suppress it. You don't try to, uh, Return to the breath necessarily. This is not a return oh. to the breath meditation. It's Which called is what I, most meditation. A lot is, of people it's all about you remember your breathing, and that's the thing that matters now. And you're present because you're breathing, and you're alive, and you're breathing. Yeah, there's different kinds of mindfulness. There's mm-hmm. different different. It's different stages of the creative process. Different ways of thinking are going to be important. So if you're in that stage of the creative process where you want to just cut, generate lots and lots of different ideas, and you don't, you know, want to. Um, narrow it down just yet. You don't want to brainstorm. Mm-hmm. Um, this open monitoring form of meditation is going to be very valuable. All right. So explain again what that is. Open monitoring. Your mind wanders, and yeah, you allow that to happen. You're okay with that. And you know, first mm-hmm. you start off with you know being very comfortable and getting in touch with um, you know closing your eyes, getting comfortable, getting in touch with your uh, emotions. How am I feeling? Um, what does my heart feel? All this stuff, just to, just to guide into it. But then you really you want to get to this level of consciousness where you are um, intensely um, uh, focused on your daydreams. I, I call it mindful daydreaming. <laughs> mindful daydreaming. Yeah, yeah, very important. It's very important for getting in touch with your deepest self and with your um, uh, and get understanding the patterns of unresolved issues in your in your life. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's a great continuity between our night dreams and our daydreams in that sense, um, where we constantly have ruminating about these um, uh, common themes. So yeah, we have a very open-minded um, sort of uh, thought process. A lot of creative ideas, don't, most creative ideas, don't come through conscious deliberation mm-hmm. of trying to solve it. They usually come in an altered state of consciousness. So shower, yeah. Oh yeah. By the way, I've done a research with uh, Hans Grohe Showerheads, one of the top showerhead companies in the world. We found that people get more creative inspiration, uh, report greater creative inspiration in their shower than they do at work. <laughs> and that's because worldwide, we found that worldwide uh, uh, because our mind is um, uh, relaxed and it lets us uh, be mindful to our daydreams. It allows our daydreams to, um, you know, to to allows our mind to wander. You know, but we're also in this relaxed state where if some sort of great connection does arise, it'll reach that threshold of consciousness and we'll be like, oh, wow, that was a great idea. <laughs> so you have to be relaxed and open. And open. And and I guess non-monitoring? That's right. That's right. To uh, allow the creative yes. impulse to come to the surface of consciousness. Absolutely. Creativity. Got Barry Kaufman. Uh, an extremely creative mind. Thank you so much for joining us on Work and Life today. Thank you. I really love this conversation. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman, who teaches us that creativity is essential for cultivating a life in which there really is integration among the different parts of it. 
talks about the importance of finding harmonious passion. But what if you haven't found it? Well, start by being open to new experiences, new opportunities. And here's a couple of things that that, uh, you might want to try coming out of um, Kaufman's work. One, try open monitoring meditation for 10 minutes a day for the next week. Or practice gratitude. Keep a journal. Write down two or three things you're most grateful for at the end of each day and notice the things that give you joy. And then tell me how it went. I would love to hear from you. You can write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu and tell me what you discovered when you tried those things. Or perhaps you've heard something on some other shows, other episodes of our show, and you'd like to tell me about those. Again, write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, and I'm planning to feature uh, in future episodes short stories from people who do write to me and tell me about how they've used what they have learned about in, in past episodes of our show. One more thing I'd like to tell you about uh, that we want to start doing here is to refer back to some of our earlier episodes and what people are up to now. So I'll just tell you uh, about episode five, in which I talked to the remarkable Sam Polk about how he left Wall Street and radically changed his life. Well, just very recently, he had an article in the Los Angeles Times on the challenges of nonprofit life and and how he now makes a difference in the world with his company, Every Table. So you might want to check that out. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.